everyone. This is the Mincing Rascals podcast. I'm John Hansen, filling in for John Williams this week. It's Wednesday, July 26th, 2023. It's 4.10 in the afternoon on this Wednesday when we're recording. So any late-breaking news that happens between now and when you listen, we're not going to cover here. <laughs> that makes sense. I'm John Hansen. I'm of uh, WGN Radio, WCIU-TV, Block Club Chicago, and the Chicago Blackhawks. I'm Austin Burke from the Illinois Policy Institute, and you can listen to my podcast, America's Talking. I'm Anna DeBlantis, journalist, investigative journalist, and I work for WGN Radio. I'm Brandon Pope from WBEZ's Making Podcast and On the Block, powered by Block Club Chicago on WCIU. I'm Eric Zorn, the former guest host of The Mincing Rascals, uh, who mm-hmm. also publishes the Picayune Sentinel weekly Substack newsletter. You can write to me, ericzorn at gmail.com. I'll put you on the list. I was wondering how quick that you were going to bring that up, that you guest hosted last week and I was the guest and now I'm guest hosting. There's nothing nefarious there, Eric. I promise. We're just each getting a turn. How, how things change in one way. <laughs> you did great last week. It was wonderful. Okay. This is like a Leno. It's a Leno Conan situation. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Okay, let's just dive right in. I think this has been the big story for a couple of weeks now. The new element of this story, and we're talking about the Northwestern football scandal, is that Michael Schill uh, actually did an interview breaking a couple of weeks of silence with the Daily Northwestern, which I think was, first of all, the appropriate place to do it, considering the Daily Northwestern has done so much of the legwork in reporting on the story and breaking it. I read through it. I kind of nodded along and appreciated some things he said, like he made an initial decision, but he likes to think through things again and changed his mind. I know that aggravates people sometimes, but I personally have no problem with people changing their opinions and minds when they learn more information. And then the rest of it seemed fairly cookie cutter, at least to me. Was there anything that anyone saw in this interview or read through that they thought changed their mind on the story or moved the story along? Eric, I'll start with you. I thought that his defense of himself, which was, well, I didn't actually read the report all that carefully until after I decided on the punishment. And I didn't really talk to anybody about uh, what the hazing was until Monday after I'd issued the punishment. Uh, was crazy. And then he sort of talked about this being good leadership, that he was able to change his mind. If you were presented with new facts that were unavailable to you and you made a decision, that's one thing. He just made a decision to go out with this on the Friday afternoon with a two-week suspension before he had done the sort of diligence that you would want someone to do who is truly in a, an effective leader. And then he had to mumble his way through this strange skid back where he goes from a very modest, mild punishment to the full firing. I mean, I thought that that he exposed himself as a pretty poor leader in that interview. I was uh, showing Nicole Marcus around the building at WGN Radio. She's one of the authors of that article. She's one of the people, she was the one who was invited to interview the president of Northwestern, and she was with us the day she got the invitation. First of all, I just got to give them so much credit. The mm-hmm. students at the Daily Northwestern and the, the, the work that they have done on this, this is like it makes me proud to be an alum just to see what they've done. And, and the way they've handled it without getting emotionally attached to it when you know that they're a student and this, the people who have been harmed by this are also students. I give them credit. I just feel like, okay, so I'm I'm the person who broke the big hazing story on the North Shore with the powder puff hazing years ago. And that right. was one of the things Nicole and I, yeah. you know, kind of talked about because I know what kind of 
pressure that can be on you as the journalist who's trying to report these things when administrations sometimes or teams in this case don't necessarily want you to expose it. And there's a cover up and there's a there's an effort to sort of try to block you as you pursue the facts. And she absolutely was relentless in the pursuit of the facts. But I think that the, the parallel here, too, is that the way hazing happens for so many years is because the system allows it to happen. And in this case, it's no different. I don't know how high it reaches, but certainly when there are players saying that even the coach was doing the Shrek move to say, okay, it's time to do the hazing, or I don't know who knew what, when, but I do know that a system of people that involved higher ups allowed this to happen. And so to me, I just feel like when I see the hear the president talking, I, I didn't get that sense that he's like, God, we were wrong. We failed. This was so bad for us as a university to do this kind of thing or just to not be aware of it. How dumb are we or how ignorant or I, I don't know. It just maybe I know they have lawsuits. And so it's it's hard to pick your words. But to me, I felt as if you're the adults here. And yes, there is responsibility. And I just feel like there are very few apologies here. There are very few people just taking ownership. There's an I, interesting yeah. question about responsibility up the chain from Fitzgerald and down. So if Fitzgerald owns the culture in the football team, what share of that does the president of the university own? And I agree that that was not addressed at all in that interview. And I thought one of the great questions was, and what I was very curious to hear him talk about was, well, there's only one person that's left the team and it's Fitzgerald. And why is that? His answer was essentially, well, if people are have allegations against individuals, we have a process that we follow and we're amidst that process. That really gives a lot of ammunition to people who are saying Pat Fitzgerald did not get the due process that he deserved in this. This was done for PR reasons, not for the safety of any players, because if it was for safety of players, why isn't the number two also fired? Why not the number three? Why not the number four? Like, Why aren't those people subject to the same standard as Fitzgerald was, which you can set that standard of you own the culture there, so you must be fired. But that doesn't make sense if there's other senior coaching staff that doesn't isn't isn't subject to that same standard. They get a special process that's called due process, and we go through that. That was another thing that stood out to me. They did a six-month investigation. Maggie Hickey did a six-month investigation. You would have thought that she would have looked at the conduct throughout the coaching ranks and even through the players ranks too. Like all of a sudden you've got to start the process all over again with the assistant coaches who were around. And most of them were around. Apparently there are five of them who are new, but the staff is 12, 17, something like that. So the idea that they conducted this kind of halfway investigation and then he didn't really even read through it or talk to anybody or talk it through. I think that he thought that he could get through this interview and look like he was a responsible leader. But to me, he failed. I uh, did find interesting that uh, really pinged for me was him saying, in addition on Monday morning, referring to the Monday after the the longer weekend, after some of the stories came out, I met with the investigator and her associate. And what I did there was I asked them to provide me details from the raw testimony of each person they spoke with. So we went person by person. Why is raw testimony not included in the report in the first place? And that leads me to believe and wonder, what did Northwestern ask of the investigators to make in their final report? Did they set the threshold by which someone would be found culpable, right? If they said, don't hold anyone culpable unless there's a preponderance or something along those lines, because 
if what was said in the raw testimony was enough for him to potentially change his mind on this situation, why wasn't it in the investigative report? It throws the whole report to me in question. I agree. And that's what's always interesting about the standards by which these independent investigations are held. Because if you're an investigator worth your salt, I don't know why you wouldn't have a process for delivering all of that information. Like you don't get to go, but like if we're in a trial, you don't get to then go back and say like, well, actually, could we like double click on a couple of these things? You know, (laughs) that that doesn't sound like a rigorous process of investigation, like a weekend conversation with the entity being investigated about particular elements of the investigation. That seems really fly by night stuff. Do we know that it wasn't in the report? Because Maggie Hickey's done some pretty serious, credible work in the past, and she's linked to some really, um, you know, really digging in deep on a lot of sensitive situations. All I have is that he says, I've met with the investigator. So what I did there was to ask me to provide me with details from the raw testimony as if almost the raw testimony, at least this is what it reads to me, is that, you know, there's obviously hours and hours and hours of raw testimony. You're not going to put all of that in a report, but maybe some things were either missing or important details that were overlooked. Or again, maybe Northwestern said, I don't want you to include this unless it's been corroborated by two or three people. And she was required to leave it out of the final report. I don't really know. That's important because to me, just knowing this thoroughness and having covered cases before that Maggie has issued reports on, they seem incredibly impartial and incredibly thorough. And so either it was in there or you're right, there was some sort of parameters around what could be included. And that to me would go back to the president of the university. And that would go back to the folks who ordered this to say, well, wait a minute, maybe it's partially on them. The reasons why it's not in there as well, because I think her work speaks for itself. Just, you know, just makes you wonder, is this yet another little really peculiar thing about the way this whole thing evolved. I think we're all asking questions about that. It feels as if at each barrier, once they're confronted with the truth, then Northwestern says, oh my God, you know, here we are. Right. And then they're confronted with the new truth. And then it's like, oh, oh yeah. Now, now that I know that, you know, well, oh, okay. Now we got to react to that. I mean, obviously. Right. And then, you know, it just feels kind of icky. We don't know what Meg Hickey's mandate was, and I agree with Anna that the reports that she has issued in the past have seemed thorough and fair and comprehensive. We also don't know what the report says because Northwestern still hasn't released it and has no plans to release it, even a redacted form where you keep some names out. So it's really hard hard to say, but it does feel like the athletic director and the president need to step up and maybe need to go. This needs a, a big house cleaning here, and maybe some players need to go as well, even though they were part of a culture that they probably were they were probably victimized by hazing, and then they were the victimizers and so on. That this story isn't over. I also see in the news today that players, former players of Minnesota, are claiming that there was a very toxic culture up there, and and I can't believe that Minnesota's the last Big Ten school or major football school where this is going to start coming out. I wouldn't be surprised um, so, if there's so, if, if a lot of college football players are reading these reports and nodding along saying, yep, this is what happens. And obviously, we frame things a lot differently now. We know a lot more about things nowadays, and we frame things a little bit differently now. So, I mean, this could be just the start of a domino effect of a bunch of colleges. And, and really, at that point, then you wonder, when is the NCAA going to step in? and order reviews of every college to look at what's happening inside their institutions and at least reframe rules and regulations about what's supposed to happen. At the end of the day, by the way, I just feel like he released this two-week suspension on a Friday, news breaks, he changed his mind on his Monday. Has anyone in the last couple of weeks changed their opinion that this was tried to swept under the rug, 
was caught by the student newspaper, and they're just playing defense at this point. Nothing that I've heard since then has broken that original hypothesis that I think all of us had. That's been the suspicion from the start, and I, I don't, yeah, I don't think we get we get reassured as it keeps going yes. along. Anna, can you refresh our memory about the powder puff hazing scandal? Because I remember that story just vaguely, and uh, yeah. it was really interesting and really controversial. Can you refresh our okay, memory? Okay, so on that? it was on the North Shore. The Glenbrook North Powder Puff Football Girls Team um, was playing plays the senior team, plays the junior team, and for years, twenty years plus, some of these girls' parents had done it. So they would go to the forest preserve and they would play this powder puff football game girls senior versus junior and what it really always turned into was a hazing thing and it was in the forest preserve where no one saw and this particular year two girls were sent to the hospital so news media got called out there and we all covered it we said oh gosh oh shucks it sucks that you know two girls got really one one broke the collarbone was not small but sometimes that happens i suppose but then later i figured out that there was a lot more that happened to it so i stayed all night and obtained a videotape ultimately that showed they were hazing the crap out of each other. They were kicking each other, punching. They threw buckets on their heads and then punched them. And it was just this horrible, they threw fish guts and blood and entrails. And like, this was so premeditated that they were going to get into it. And then some girls had personal issues over boys. So they got, the senior girls were just, it was just a horrifying thing to see. And these were the good kids. These were the kids who were bound for great schools. And they were kids who were sometimes A students. And and I think it was just kind of a, it was, it was a big light on hazing because you often thought of hazing as being something that would happen in the military, might happen, you know, in a fraternity, but certainly North Shore high school girls weren't doing it. And I think that it's interesting because there again, there was a system in place that everyone sort of looked the other way. I mean, how many people knew, right? You have 40 girls out there doing it. And, you know, year after year, people knew when people would discuss it and they'd talk and it just never went away because it was allowed to happen until that moment in time. Anna, did anyone in the other schools come forward or you hear from anyone else after that? Maybe it didn't lead to a full story, but that you heard from other people that it was happening in other schools, too. One of the most gratifying things about it was exactly that, because I actually had a cousin who went to Glenbrook North at that time. And he's like, why are you bringing shame to my school? And this, one of them, one of the columnists for that local paper wrote something about how what shame that I brought to this amazing school. And I thought, well, it's you and your school that brought the shame on you, not me. But the most gratifying thing was taking emails from students who said, hey, I'm gay, and I get hazed all the time, and people beat me up, and no one took it seriously until that came out. And now they realize your school is responsible because it went all the way up to the school board with this whole thing. And, you know, people were fired and kids were, you know, expelled and they lost their scholarships and stuff. And so suddenly school systems said, you know what, we got to pay attention to this. So there were bullying and hazing incidents all across the country going on that because of that, aided those students and gave them a bigger voice to be able to speak up. And this was 2003, which is a little bit before everyone was carrying a video camera in their pocket. I don't think that that could be happening today because all the students, half the parents, everyone would be filming this with their cameras. And so it probably would have been exposed very easily and and probably put a stop to. But yeah, I'm remembering this now. I I was looking while you were talking online and trying to see what uh, I had written about it and what other people had written about it. But yeah, that was was horrible. So I remember I I was forgetting the details, but it was just awful what those kids were doing to each other. I take your point. And I was on Oprah because of it, because we were trying to say, hey, look, this happens. And this is the kind of thing that people don't like to believe happens. Luckily, there was somebody who had videotaped it and that was cool. But what about the Northwestern students? You know, they have 
phones right. now. I do understand that there are a few videos that were sent to the Daily Northwestern. I don't think they're shared, but uh, I don't know if anybody's seen anything, but they mentioned that there were some videotapes that were shared with the Daily Northwestern that helped bolster the story in the beginning when not everyone was clear, you know, what was to be believed. I think, Anna, you are our first and maybe only mincing rascal to have been on Oprah. Can anyone double check that? Eric, you've obviously been on the show way longer than I have. I have not been on Oprah. Neil Steinberg may have been on Oprah. Oh, at some point. yeah. Or maybe not. He has a war with Oprah, so maybe not. I don't know. I'm not sure, <laughs> well, let's so. give it to Anna and her great reporting. She likes Chicago journalists. So I think there's been a few over the years, but sure. that was a fun experience. I do want to ping on this story out of Florida and the Board of Education and the new rules that they have about what they teach in their schools and their social studies standards. They approved a new standards in, on July 19th following a law that was passed by the legislature last year known as the Stop Wrongs Against Our Kids and Employees Act. And if that sounds like a mouthful, it's just the Stop Woke Act, which I think they came up with the acronym first and then filled in all the words to make the acronym work later, which often happens in legislation. The new laws ban workplaces and schools from teaching that anyone must feel guilt based on their race as a result of actions by others in the past. The one line that has really gotten a lot of attention and part of the new standard in Florida is the law says that the state, anyone in grades six through eight, essentially middle school, must examine the various duties and trades performed by slaves, agriculture, work, painting, carpentry, tailoring, domestic service, blacksmithing, transportation, and the clarification about slave labor that says instruction includes how slaves develop skills which in some instances could be applied for their personal benefit. And that has caused a big controversy. The vice president, uh, Kamala Harris, has been kind of on the forefront, uh, leading very strict uh, Democratic push against this. I think maybe this wouldn't be such a big deal if it wasn't in the Stop Woke Act, where a lot of people have criticisms up and down. And then there's just this one line. Who would put this line? I don't get the reason for it. Am I missing something? Like, is this was this an effort to try and show that slaves were, were able to gain skills? And it's not like a silver lining thing, but it's a, oh, this is an important part of the history. Am I missing something? Because it just seems ridiculous to me that it's in there. I think it is exactly what you're talking about. It's a uh, attempt to find a silver lining or to create a silver lining for this dreadful institution. I mean, there's any number of ways that you can take something horrible and say, well, the, the, here's a good result that came out of it. In my case, Hitler's rise in Germany is what drove my grandfather out of Germany to the United States, where his little boy, my mother, and here I am. I mean, that's a crazy way of looking at historical atrocities, right? And certainly slavery is that. And to mention it, it seems to me just a, a deliberate effort to minimize the horrors of that of that institution. And that's, and that's why I think it's getting such deserved negative attention. I, I do want to say, I mean, they do teach what slavery is as well. And I'm not negating your point. I just, I'm just bringing up that they talk about the actions in the past. They do a broad sweep of black history. They do topics like the Holocaust, world history, geography. You're right. I mean, that one little line just stands out to me. There are 190 some items about slavery, segregation, and racism in this broader curriculum. And that includes things like how slave codes resulted in an enslaved person becoming property with no rights. And how the demand for slave labor resulted in a large forced migration within the United States. But I think the wording of this one item in the context of other decisions made in Florida about curriculum and what can and can't be said, that's why it's getting scrutiny. I don't think this 
item in a 191 point curriculum about slavery in another state that did not have that current cultural moment in our country, I don't know if it would raise as many eyebrows. I really don't think it would. That's not to say that it isn't a horribly worded standard, but I do think it is important to take into context some of the other standards that are alongside it and and how that is applied, right? What I would love to see is what is the textbook saying about this to try to meet this standard and what's right. the question about it? Right. How is it contextualized, right? Like how is this worded? Because, right, this is just what the language of the law says or what the curriculum guidance is, how it actually manifests itself in a book, I think would be an important distinction to have. But then Austin, to your point, then why doesn't someone, I mean, Governor DeSantis's response was like, hey, someone else did it, not my problem, which is so not what Governor DeSantis normally does. Why doesn't someone just say, all right, yeah, this this was a mistake worded this way. Let's just change it. Almost the defense of it is what makes this story have so many legs. Not that the Democrats wouldn't pounce on this no matter what and ride it as long as they could for political gain, because that's what they do. And that's what all political parties do. But why not just strike it? The edit to me seems very clear because it's not as though enslaved people did not learn skills. Of course they did. And after being freed from enslavement, perhaps those skills were useful in their life. I I don't think anyone is disputing that that's correct. But the problem is it it ends at this uh, phrase could be applied for their personal benefit. Like just say maybe after being freed from enslavement or, or something. It's just that hard, inartful bizarre end of that sentence. That's the problem. It it does seem like it could be easily fixed. I just think context is the important thing. You're right. I mean, it's just ridiculous. That sentence on its own is just ridiculous. And there should be some up. People should be very, everyone should just stand up and say, that's wrong. Let's make it right. I don't know what the full context of this whole thing is. And so, you know, you saw this on the other side too, with like parents showing up at school boards and saying, protesting when they only had a little piece of the information or they didn't quite understand what was being taught. And I think that's what's important, right? To explain the whole context of what is being discussed. If you name legislation the Stop Woke Act, then people are going to go through it with a fine tooth comb, right? Like there's a way to also like pass legislation that changes things the way you want to change them without everyone looking at it and trying to analyze every little thing. Then it just feels like this is motivated by something that, you know, maybe it is, maybe it isn't, but everyone's going to react that way when they read something like this. That's why what was so bizarre to me about the DeSantis statement on this. The Stop Woke Act is a is a political ad for Ron DeSantis. And the ad is he's running to the right of Trump. And that's been his entire campaign strategy. And it's really failed. And the very clear message from Ron DeSantis to Republican voters from the very beginning, in my opinion, should have been, I win. This guy loses. If you go with this guy, you lose. If you go with me, you win. Instead, all of his messaging has been around that he's to the right of Trump. And actually, the left hates Ron DeSantis more than they hate Trump. And uh, you Republican primary voters should vote for the people that the left hates the most. They hate me the most. So it's so odd to me that he would back off uh, yeah. when asked about this instead of totally leaning in and saying, this is, you know, these are the wokes coming after me yet again. Things aren't going particularly well for DeSantis. Are they? <laughs> I mean, I, you just read in Politico that, you know, two of his Hamptons fundraisers had to be canceled because then they had enough people and he cut the ticket price in half and they couldn't find hosts. And yeah. his messaging is a real problem, I think. And, and But there might be some other stuff there, too. People aren't really... You know, the momentum isn't there for this candidate. And so he's he's maybe redefining. I don't know. Is he is he in panic mode? Is he in, you know, re 
messaging mode? I'm not sure, but it certainly seems like there's some life support elements to his campaign right now. He's fired what half his campaign staff, or something like that. I mean, he's mm-hmm. fired a whole bunch of people who, who work for him. I can't see that campaign going on a whole lot longer. He seems to be falling in the polls rather than rising at this point, and he's just kind of a charmless guy. I mean, I know, I know that uh, you know, I don't agree with his politics. Maybe that shows through in my interpretation of him. But I could see Trump's appeal. I could see why people would gravitate toward Trump and his attitude and his charisma. And and DeSantis really has very little of that. Uh, He seems like a very strange man. And it's unclear to me even how he got elected governor in Florida, but he just seems to be falling. And and I think non-Trump Republican voters are looking for someone more like Tim Scott, Who's doing this this optimistic conservatism riff? That uh, I, I look for him to rise in the polls, and I look for DeSantis to keep falling. I, I don't know if someone's going to overtake Trump, but but that seems to me to where this this race is going. With the DeSantis thing and the textbooks, I'm very much a believer in the mantra that if we don't talk about and tell our full history, then we're doomed to repeat it. And many say, "Oh, that's extreme. We're never going to go back to slavery." Eh, but we can get somewhere close to it. That would not be right for people. And you could argue that many of these legislators, including Ron DeSantis, are pushing legislation that's trying to turn the clocks back on civil rights and things like that. So have these academic these academic standards and erase from textbooks what actually happened with slavery or try to whitewash it in a sense and make it sound like slavery benefited black people. It's appalling. It's, it's a slap in the face. And it's not right by any degree. And so what's what's most unfortunate about this is the generations of children that are going to be impacted by this and therefore grow up to be adults who think, oh, well, slavery wasn't so bad after all. It actually benefited some people. Maybe they learned to get carpentry or they learned to be blacksmiths. And that's just so beyond the pale. It's so beyond the pale. And the fact that we have states like Florida and Texas themselves who were so ingrained, the South itself, in slavery and the slave trade and the business and economy of slavery. And now they want to act like none of that ever happened or that it was actually a good thing. It's a bad thing for our country. And I feel like I say this all the time at this point, because every week there's a new story that's like this, but we're literally turning the clocks back on civil rights and just normal things in human life. And it's really unfortunate. Someone would say it's horrific. And obviously slavery is the linchpin here, why this is why this would happen. But someone learns a new skill and when they are freed, them and their families benefit over years and years because that skill learn and they're able to, uh, to, to do these things. Someone might say, well, that actually did happen in a couple instances. Why wouldn't that be part of the whole story? Can you explain why we should leave it out entirely? Because is that what you would advocate for is just saying, well, let's not include that because it really isn't a big part of the story. And also it's because you enslaved them just because there was a benefit we shouldn't include it in the book. I don't know where I sit on that because as someone, and you said, like, we got to tell the whole story. Is that just not a worthy story to tell six to eighth graders? Look, you can tell the full story, right? Without trying to re-envision slavery as a workforce development strategy or a skills training program, right? <laughs> right. Um, like when I was learning about slavery, yeah, I learned that slaves picked up skills, but I also learned why they picked up those skills because they were forced to do it. It's forced labor. They didn't get paid for. And to act like as well that they benefited from these these skills they learned, many of these slaves never got their freedom. It's like it's like if they survived, then maybe they could have benefited from these skills, right? But in the end, the skills, them learning it was to the benefit of the people who were enslaving them. The only benefit there was was to the white slave owner. 
So that would be my pushback to that. You can mention, you could talk about slaves gaining skills, but you have to give the full context about who were those skills benefiting. Wasn't really benefiting the slaves. This acting like it's a workforce development program and help create jobs. Ridiculous. I also think it's a fair point to bring up that you said that for centuries, slaves lived, died and were slaves and knew no other life to say gaining skills after slavery, then that they could promote a business or like be a worker. It's like the vast, vast majority of slaves died in slavery. It's not the same thing as saying, like, let's say you find benefits to the economy or to the women's rights movements out of World War II, because a lot of women went to work and then found that that was their calling. And then, like, you could, I think there's a historical, maybe not silver lining, but like, those, those are arguments to me. But the war lasted four years, and the vast majority of women that lived through the war lived after the war, too. It wasn't like a forced thing. I don't know if that makes any sense, the analogy I made there, but someone can save me if you want. I just wonder what is the benefit. For anyone of, of trying to put a positive spin on slavery. So I was trying, we were thinking about Brandon, how it would be rewritten. And one of the ways it could obviously be rewritten is if enslaved people were free, those skills could be applied to XYZ. Okay, whatever. But the other way to view it, if you're taking it totally from scratch, is how do we make sure that kids know that enslaved people were not passive or uneducated people? And that in fact, despite uh, horrific oppression, were able to do or develop amazing skills or things. That is sort of a way to, in some way, it's the purpose of teaching it is to humanize the people. And that's why you would talk about enslaved people having skills would be to humanize the fact like these were people like you and me who developed skills and had interests, right? And that could be how you word the standard. But the fact that you had a panel of like 13 people who this is all they did. They approved this. That is like, it's just laziness. And, you know, at worst it's, you know, just explicitly racist, but at, at best it's like just really careless and lazy wording of a, of a standard. Yeah. It's a panel of people that think slavery was an unpaid internship. Like, well, what are we doing y'all? Come on, come on. Like the way I learned about slavery. Yeah. There were some slaves that learned how to read and they benefited from it in terms of like gaining their freedom, like a Frederick Douglass. Right. But Frederick Douglass learned how to read, was forced to learn how to read for the benefit of his slave owners. It wasn't because mm-hmm. he was given the access to, and they said, yeah, we want the, you to do this so you're better. No, <laughs> it was for the slave owner's benefit. So you're right. There's a way to word it. But the way that should, they try to carry around this is an unpaid internship or some job training program. Should, crazy. They, should, they, should they point out that they got free a free boat trip all the way to free food? <laughs> <laughs> right you think got a free cruise law <laughs> was a luxury cruise yes. today? Kind of just in case there's any sense. curious about who that was eric zorn's voice uh with that last <laughs> statement I mean, I mean hey it sounded like something out of the history book next they're gonna be like sometimes they got clothes sometimes <laughs> they got free food they got food vouchers man what a treat sucker punch somebody on the sidewalk carjack an old lady at a red light pull a gun on the owner of a liquor store yeah i think it's cool well act a fool if you like cuss out a cop spit in his face stomp on the flag and light it up yeah you think you're tough well try that in a small town see how far you make it down the road around here we take care of our own you cross that line it won't take long for you to find out i recommend you don't try that in a small town 
I think most lyrics should be read like stale poetry. I think it's always <laughs> a fun way to do it. That is Jason Aldean's first two graphs of Try That in a Small Town, which is released in May and now is months later causing this giant controversy. It's also shooting his song up to the top of iTunes charts, I think. I read. It's really ignited this debate of whether this is a racist song, whether it's full of dog whistles. Or whether it's only racist if you close one eye and tilt your head a little bit and maybe you want it to be. So I guess I don't want to ask you straight up whether it is or isn't because that's all up for interpretation. But Eric, what do you think about this controversy? To me, small town codes as white. And so there is a sense that white, maybe Christian people are going to take the law into their own hands. And it, to me, it's a, it's a song about vigilantism. What he's saying, in effect, I'll take matters into our own hands, is if you come to a small town, you come to my, my town, I guess he came from Macon, Georgia, which is not exactly a small town, but if you, if you go to a small town America, rural America, white America, and you spit on the flag or spit in the cop's face, that we are going to do violence back to you. We're not going to put up with this. I don't necessarily see it as racist, although, uh, you know, like I say, Given that that rural America, I mean, you got to also think about the video that accompanies this this song. There there are black and white, quote unquote, offenders shown in this video. There are people doing uh, violence and and so on. So to say that it's all about blacks against whites, I think, is misleading. But there certainly seems to be an undertone there. Certainly, a vigilantism, if, if not uh, coded racism. I don't agree that small town is necessarily white. So like, and the reason I think that is because a lot of people, even in our own state, assume that, well, every black Illinoisan lives in Chicago. And actually, there are far more black Illinoisans outside the city of Chicago than within it. Really? Same thing with, yeah, actually by a pretty significant amount. So there's, okay. I think, fewer than 800,000 black Chicagoans and there's, there's 1.8 million black Illinoisans. But they live in, in suburban areas for the most part, right? I mean, we, if you're talking about the greater Chicago area. I mean, I'm talking I think, about like, city talking limits. About- now, I guess the question is like, when we say small town, do we mean a very specific white town? But I, I don't know. There's people from all races in rural communities across the country. I think where he really stepped in it, though, is this location of where the music video was shot, which was at a courthouse where there's famously a lynching. That, to me, is like the real foot in the mouth thing that this guy did. And he, of course, was saying like, well, I had no idea. The video production company was like, everybody shoots here. You know, that was the really dumb, needlessly divisive mistake here, I think, actually less so than the lyrics, which are clearly similar to what we're talking about with DeSantis. It's like, I'm going to be popular because I hate the left more than everybody else. Right. It's, It's sort of a similar, it's coming from a similar ethos, I think. I find it extremely insulting to anyone. There's so many black people that live in small towns. Bro, what are you doing? Second, Forgot that Jason Aldean is still popular. Third, this is the common language and common thought that's going around from this segment of the right wing, in a sense. It's a dangerous one that's trying that they're trying to normalize at this point. And um, it's just unfortunate. It's sad to see racist imagery and racist things propped up. It's sad to see the fear mongering, trying to, you know, act like everything is burning down and mostly black people are the ones doing it. It's unfortunate to hear the threats of violence that come with that and put it in a song that people are going to be joyously singing with so much pride. Yeah, try that here. Yeah, the culture around this, it fits into the gun culture, the stand your ground culture, all the way back to George Zimmerman, this idea of the other sort of taking up your own space. 
taking things away from you just from existing, just for fighting for equal rights, for fighting for justice. There's no doubt there's been violent protest from black organizations. There's been violent protests from white people, too. Anybody see January 6th? Can we try that in a small town? Like, what are we talking about? I've seen a lot of memes going around like, try that in a small town, and then they show a picture of Ahmaud Arbery. He did try that in a small town. He was jogging, and he tried that in a small town, and that's what happened. That That's a fair point to make, although obviously that's not what the song is not about jogging. At least that's not what the lyrics say. But a lot of people have said, and they pointed to a lot of black kids killed either by police officers or other ones and said they tried that in a small town very basic things right let's lighten things up to end and barbie heimer oppen barbie what is the barbie whatever the whole thing was barbenheimer took over Boppenheimer took over the country this weekend and uh, from what i've read they both I think shattered expectations and it's been how it's designed from the beginning. I think they both benefited from both coming out of the weekend. I think what a genius way to tie these two things together. I don't know if it happened organically at first by just everyday people pointing out that these movies were coming out at the same time and so diametrically opposed in terms of what they were all about. But I almost wonder if studios now are going to start thinking of new ways to pair movies together again, to try and like capture this in the future. Did anyone raise your hand? If you saw Barbie Brandon's up and, if Is my he... daughter saw saw it, does that count? Sure, Can, sure. Okay. I'll represent. So that's two yes. Raise your hands if you saw Oppenheimer, Brandon Pope. That's it. Okay, so we're not very representative, or maybe we are, of the entire country. What is your take on these movies both coming out at the same time? What it means maybe to Hollywood, and also under the weird context that we're in the middle of a giant strike in Hollywood, too, at the same time? Yeah, it's a weird time, but it feels like cinema, true cinema, is back. Like I remember growing up, and movies coming out it was an event and you had the marketing lots of marketing everywhere you had toys you had tie-ins and somehow that went away and barbie just brought that all the way back their marketing budget is crazy they were everywhere right and to fuse with oppenheimer they just made history so there's never been a film that's come out number one opening weekend and then the film that came in second made more than 50 million dollars that's never happened and oppenheimer made 80 that's pretty incredible for Christopher Nolan to pull off. And both also are really great movies. Two contenders for best films of the year by two outstanding directors. So it was a joy to have both in this moment. It felt organic. It was the fans who made this kind of Barbenheimer thing happen. It was viral memes and jokes that the filmmakers latched onto, right? That the actors latched onto and all had some fun with it. And it became a nice phenomenon. I love that. I love that. It feels like we're getting a little bit of that unity that comes from these great entertainment things back a little bit. I love seeing people be able to unite over their love for Barbie growing up with Barbie dolls or their love for both history and Barbie, the show that people are layered and more than just one or the other. That's the other fun part about this. These two movies, when they come out, right, people expect that they have different demographics. That's why they come out together, right? That's why Nolan chose that date. That's why Greta Gerwig and them chose that date. They're like, oh, there's no way. But the fact that there is crossover, right? We we can cross over. We can be multifaceted. I love it. So I, I'm all for Barbenheimer. I'm I'm totally I'm hating on Barbie right about now, and I'll tell you why. Because <laughs> I live I live in the West Loop where the Barbie pop up is, and everybody runs through the neighborhood in hot pink, and their hair's hot pink, and, and they're all dressed up with their like their high heat and their strip. I, I just 
There's so much Barbie. I mean, and you're right. To your point, Brandon, the marketing budget, there are pop-ups everywhere. There's like a Barbie sandwich at one of these restaurants. I heard that Burger King in some countries has now has a burger that's pink for Barbie. And like, it's like, oh my God, like, it's just crazy. It's like shoved on our throats in some ways. Did your daughter play with Barbies, Anna? No, she was into those, uh, the princesses, because she was like Little Mermaid and all those other, you know, all the little like Belle and all those, those things, the Disney princesses. Did she like the movie though? Yeah, she loved it and she went to the pop-up and she loved it and her girlfriends went and they want to go back again and bring her cousins and like they're so into the barbie thing and it's like oh my god it's nuts but i heard that christopher nolan was not thrilled that they did it on the same weekend that he was oh. having a spat with warner brothers and that they i don't know i don't know I, w- I wonder if he's rethought that because a lot of the attention that that movie is getting is sort of based on on this irony and right and uh the fact that it's it's this very very good Good, successful movie at the same time that Barbie is. It's just kind of doubled the attention that his movie in particular has gotten. And uh, Brandon is among those I've heard just say it's terrific. So I'm looking I, forward to seeing it. I do find this intellectual property move in, in movies is fascinating. And the fact that this is, I mean, Mattel pushed this movie in an effort to rebrand Barbie to get some positive light on Barbie, this toy that we've all known been around for 60 years and the idea that for a while there barbie was on thin ice right like changing the look of what barbie is and not only changing her appearance but making sure she had jobs and this whole idea of like this love-hate relationship that americans have with barbie and what barbie represents and it all got thrown out the window like everyone just seems to be okay with it now what a huge win for mattel but i gotta give mattel credit part of the reason why people have kind of embrace this is because their Barbie film addresses all that. Their Barbie film is actually a very introspective look at Barbie as a cultural figure. What does Barbie mean? The toxicity of what Barbie has meant addresses really a lot of it that I I didn't expect. I didn't go into it thinking we were going to get that deep, but it got deep. The marketing budget specifically is equal to, or in some reporting has been more than the production budget of the film. So I think it's like around $150 million, which today, if you are making media, that is what your marketing budget should be. It should be equal to production because everything's so fragmented and they knocked it out of the park. So we're going to see definitely more of that. I haven't seen either. I will see both of them. My recommendation to all the studio executives listening is we now need to do a swap. So Christopher Nolan should do Barbie and then <laughs> Greta Gerwig should do yeah. Oppenheimer. And that'll be like that. in two years, summer blockbuster. We'll just run it back. Run it back. Oh, <laughs> I like that. I'd love that. I'd love to see a Nolan treatment of Barbie. That'd be great. Ooh, that'd be great. <laughs> a look at uh, Google trends from July 15th to July uh, 22nd, broken down by state trending more Oppenheimer, California, New Mexico, Washington, New York, Maine, New Hampshire, Vermont, trending more Barbie, Mississippi, Louisiana, Texas, Oklahoma, Arkansas. And in fact, if you lay Barbie and Oppenheimer over the Electoral College map, you get some really fascinating synergy. In fact, if you were to go with it now, Democrats would be leading the electoral count 243 to 240 if you apply Barbie and Oppenheimer as your two favorites. It's fascinating. It doesn't work in everywhere, but I will say the states that are the swingiest between Barbie and Oppenheimer, meaning most down the middle, 
Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania, which are Ooh. the th- three of the swingiest states Ooh. we have. I know. Found wow. that to be interesting. Just a little nugget to end on. Way for you to politically nerd out. <laughs> I had to, right? That's what I got to <laughs> do. I don't, you know, I'm not a movie guy, so I, this is where I, I got to bring it. Uh-huh. Anyone have any last words or recommendations before we go? Things you're watching, things you're reading, things that people can do. I'm starting a second season of The Bear about many recommendations. And uh, boy, it's just a terrific show. I'm rereading Catcher in the Rye because Walter Jacobson, who I share an office with, told me that he reread it and he just saw a whole different feeling as an adult. And so that's on my reading, summer reading list. That's cool. I wouldn't think to ever do that. But yeah, what a different thought you'd have because when do we read that? Freshman, sophomore year, something like that? When you're yeah, 15 loved years it, old? right? And then never revisited it. I like that. Austin? We're in the midst of a move. So that's like all my free time is like moving things. But <laughs> over my honeymoon, we saw the last night of our honeymoon, we saw Bob Dylan in Milan. And I'd never seen Bob Dylan. And I love Bob Dylan. And to get myself hyped up for the show, I read this book called Folk Music by Grill Marcus, who's, I think, one of the best music writers alive, maybe the the best. And it's a biography of Bob Dylan and seven songs. And it was awesome. Really good. Even if you don't care about Bob Dylan, great book. Pope, last word. Yeah, uh, there's a if you're a sports fan, football fan, there's a great documentary series on Netflix called Quarterback. Follows Patrick Mahomes, Kirk Cousins, and Marcus Mariota. Three different quarterbacks at three different levels in their career. Gives you really good access about everything they do and really fascinating. Check that out. Well, this has been the Mincing Rascals. You'll hear part of this rebroadcast on Saturday nights at 8 o'clock on WGN Radio. And wherever, of course, you listen to your podcast, you'll get the full thing. A big thank you to Eric Zorn of the Picayune Sentinel, Austin Berg, Illinois Policy Institute, Anna DeVlantes of WGN Radio, Brandon Pope of WCIU, and John will be back next week. We hope. Otherwise, me and Eric have to thumb wrestle to figure out who the guest host will be. Pope's going to do it. Pope will do it. He's he's got it. I won't show up. I refuse. I have to to be the reporter on the show that Pope Pope hosts on TV. I already have to play Robin to his Batman on one thing. I don't want to do it on a second thing. Uh, All right. That'll do it for us. We're produced by Pete Zimmerman, Ashley Byhunt, Brett Jackson doing the engineering for us today. And uh, we'll drop another pod on you next week. Subscribe to the Mincing Rascals podcast on iTunes or the Google Play Music Store. You can now also follow us on Spotify, or you can keep listening online at WGNRadio.com. Radio.com.